I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome to Vet Sessions. I'm Dr. Omar Khan, your host today. We have Dr. Andrew Perrigan with us. He's been on our show a few times and needs no introduction. But those of you who may have missed his previous podcasts, Dr. Peregrine is an associate professor in veterinary parasitology in the Department of Pathobiology here at the Ontario Veterinary College. And he was one of mine and Dr. Daisy's lecturers way back in the day. Welcome, Dr. Peregrine. Thanks. Good to be here. Thank you. As you know, we usually start our you know podcast off with asking guests what their veterinary sort of pathway was, but we've asked you that a couple of times already. So instead of that, I'm going to ask you maybe to look into the future and tell us a bit about where you see veterinary parasitology going. I think where it's going is um, towards specialization. Just a few years ago, the American College of Veterinary Microbiologists introduced parasitology as a specialty area. And um, I'm involved with that. And certainly over the last two years, there's I've increasingly hearing of vets, many working with industry, but not all with industry, um, who want that as an additional qualification. And there increasingly seems to be a demand for people who have specialised in clinical veterinary parasitology in particular. Mm, so is that is that specifically an industry sort of direction or how does it relate to maybe general practice? It, it originally started, I think, in universities and mm. the recognition that people needed to have specialized training to be competent at teaching clinical parasitology, but then it's, it seems to have spilled over into industry, and industry has recognized the importance of hiring people who are not only DVMs, mm-hmm. but if they're involved in any parasite work, that they are boarded in parasitology. Right. Okay. And what's the, for, for listeners out there that might be interested in something like this, what's the, the pathway for that? There are a number of different ways you can be considered um, eligible. I mean, the usual way is you do a PhD and then you apply um, mm-hmm. to sit the exams after that, but you yeah. don't have to have a higher degree after a DVM. If you've been involved in parasite work, and, and that's typically people who are in industry, so they're involved in the approval process, right. um, then they're considered eligible to sit the exam. And then there's two exams. There's a general exam, and then there's a clinical parasitology exam. Oh. It's, it's a lot of studying, but typically after two or three years um, of preparing for it, most people pass the first time if they're adequately trained. Yeah, interesting. And is that, that, that North American? Is it global? What's well, the American College of Veterinary Microbiologists is very a North American one. There okay. is a counterpart in Europe called the European Veterinary Parasitology College. So both in Europe mm. and in North America, I think there's increasing recognition uh, of the importance of having people who've specialised in veterinary parasitology, particularly teaching yeah. um, DVM students. Okay, interesting. Well, that's good to know one, yeah, something that I wasn't aware of. So, yeah, good information. Thank you. Our topic today is the tapeworm Echinococcus multilocularis. Dr. Peregrine, can you tell us a bit more about the life and transmission cycle of this parasite? So this is a tapeworm that, as far as we're aware, is brand new to Ontario. And in fact, until about 2012, we didn't think we had it here. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, it certainly occurred out west in the southern parts of Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And it occurred in a wildlife life cycle where you've got these tiny little tapeworms, and they're no more than five to eight millimeters in length, living in the small intestine of wild canids, particularly foxes and coyotes. Mm -hmm. Didn't make them sick, but they shed eggs into the environment that looked just like the eggs of tinea 
tapeworms. So yeah. the echinococcus eggs are exactly the same morphologically. They're shed in feces, and then if wild, typically if wild rodents ingests those eggs, they hatch in the gut of the rodents, burrow through the wall of the gut, and then typically migrate to the liver, where they then start behaving like a malignant, highly invasive tumour. Mm. Um, and the disease is called alveolar echinococcosis. That just means disease due to the larval stage of this parasite. Yeah. Uh, and it infiltrates the, essentially the whole of the liver and eventually spreads around the body and eventually ends up killing the animal. Wow. For the life cycle to continue, if those infected rodents are ingested by foxes or coyotes, um, that's when they ingest intestinal infections. Mm-hmm. And historically, um, it was a wildlife-associated parasite. And until 2009, essentially, there had been no dog anywhere in Canada diagnosed infected with the parasite. Okay. But in 2009, actually in British Columbia, there was a dog diagnosed with what's called alveolar echinococcosis. Mm-hmm. And that's the larval stage in its liver. Um, yeah. And that occurs when dogs ingest large numbers of parasite eggs. And that typically would be in the feces of foxes or coyotes. Mm-hmm. And that probably is a lot less common than dogs developing intestinal infections. And that occurs if dogs ingest rodents. We really have not known how common that is until very recently because we haven't had decent diagnostic tests yeah. to examine dogs. Okay. So you mentioned fox coyotes, wolves at all? Or? It could, could be. Yeah. It just depends whatever's feeding on rodents yeah. in your area. Okay. And then you mentioned uh, 2009 in BC. And then since then, we've been seeing the odd case pop up. So the cases of alveolar echinococcosis, which is this really nasty liver, initially a liver disease in dogs. The first case was in British Columbia. Yeah. Um, and surprised everyone because until then it had never been described in North America. The only cases of alveolar echinococcosis, disease due to the larval stage, they'd only been described in Central Europe, parts of Switzerland and, for instance, the eastern parts of France. Yeah. And everyone concluded it only occurs in parts of the world with very high levels of environmental contamination. Mm-hmm. So when this first case occurred in British Columbia, um, there was a lot of surprise. And the obvious question, well, had the dog traveled? Yeah. It hadn't. Right. It lived in an area, a town called the Quinell, which is a few hours north of Vancouver inland. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, um, people found the parasite actually in foxes and coyotes in that area. So that was a surprise in 2009. And then three years later, in 2012, here in southern Ontario, we had our first case Mm. in a dog um, situated at the western end of Lake Ontario in the Golden Horseshoe area. Okay. Um, That was a dog... Um, that had travelled to Manitoulin Island. I mean, at that point, when it was diagnosed, we thought, well, it must have got infected in Manitoulin Island. Right. Because if it was in the Golden Horseshoe area, we would have known about it. Yeah. I've stopped saying things like that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because the following year, not far away from that dog, again at the western end of Lake Ontario, there was another dog diagnosed with alveolar echinococcosis, and that dog had never travelled. Mm. So it must have ingested eggs in the environment in that area. Yeah. So how were, how were the diagnoses made on those two cases? The first case, the first case was a dog that was rushed into a veterinary clinic, um, sudden onset lethargy within the previous 12, 24 hours. And right. uh, imaging showed a large amount of fluid, which turned out to be blood in the abdomen. Mm. Um, it was rushed in for an exploratory laparotomy, which is when they found out substantive lesions throughout the liver. And it had a large cystic lesion in one of the liver lobes that had ruptured, okay. which is where it was hemorrhaging from. Right. 
Um, that So that dog was acute onset clinical signs, which mm-hmm. isn't that common. The second dog that I just mentioned was totally incidental at a wellness exam. Mm. Um, the tech that was handling this particular dog just whilst they were doing other things, mentioned, I think I can feel masses in the abdomen of the dog. Oh. And there's usually masses within the liver and then sometimes throughout the abdomen as well. Okay. Interesting. That's good to know, I guess, uh, particularly in the acute case, because emergency practitioners may see the you know, patient presenting with hemoabdomen, so doing an ultrasound if there's a mass on the spleen versus something affecting the liver could maybe be a red flag for this particular disease? Yeah, I mean, the usual clinical presentation is, is pretty non-specific. Mm-hmm. Typically, a lot of the cases at the time of diagnosis have distended abdomens. Yeah, They've lost appetite and lost weight over the previous month. Some have vomiting, some have diarrhea. So it's pretty non-specific, but there's typically lesions, at least in the liver, yeah. and sometimes it's spread beyond that throughout the abdomen. Right. And at surgery, the lesions look just like hepatic neoplasia. Okay. Um, and you wouldn't know it was not tumor unless you did diagnostic testing on that. Okay. So, all right. So on, on gross exam, it may look like a tumor, but on ultrasound exam, do you think it looked more cystic or would it be sort of a solid structure? It's The, the appearance in ultrasound very much depends on how old the lesions are because mm. they do tend to, so that it is cystic in nature, but lots of tiny small cysts. Okay. And that's often difficult to appreciate in the early stages. Yeah. Um, but if it's become more chronic, often they become necrotic in the center. Okay. But, but so do tumors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes it's very suspicious, but a lot of the time you think on imaging, you're looking at a tumor. Right. Oh, that's good to know, because, you know, for someone like me who dabbles a bit in emergency medicine, if we see lesions on the liver, then it may be something to keep on our radar based on the potential history of that patient. And and there are certainly, if 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 you can do fine needle aspirates, or mm-hmm. rather than doing an exploratory laparotomy, yeah. there are some very characteristic findings in a fine needle aspirate that are very, very suggestive of multilocularis. Okay. So it may be worth doing that for various reasons yeah. to rule yeah. this in or out. Yeah. Okay, good. Good to know. Great to know. Uh, thank you. Um, so we were talking about the transmission again, um, and, and you mentioned ingesting rodents, and that leads to the shedding type disease. So can you explain a bit more about that and the other form of disease that we see? If you look at all the veterinary textbooks, you'll see really there's a, the old textbooks say there's just one thing that happens in dogs. Yeah. And that is if dogs ingest infected rodents, mm-hmm. just like the wild canids, they will develop an adult tapeworm in their small intestine. Um, that doesn't make, it almost never makes them sick, mm-hmm. but they then shed eggs in feces that are immediately infective, mm. theoretically to other rodents, but most importantly to people. Right. And people only get infected with this. And again, yeah. it's the nasty liver form mm-hmm. by ingestion of eggs. So that's the one thing you will see in most of the older textbooks. Only the newer ones have recognized mm. this issue that if dogs ingest large numbers of eggs, mm-hmm. they will develop the liver form and not the intestinal form. And it's the liver form with the larval stage that's this really nasty disease. Yeah, the alveolar. What's called alveolar echinococcosis. Yeah, okay. And, and when you say large numbers, is that over a period of time? Or is that all at once? Do, do we even know? We really don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'm very suspicious. 
suspicious that if you if you look, for instance, in southern Ontario, the proportion of foxes and coyotes that have intestinal infections, mm-hmm. there's recent work shows it's about 25%. Right. So one in four fox or coyote fecal samples you see has likely got eggs. Yeah. And then if you look at the total number of dogs that will eat that type of feces, even occasionally, mm-hmm. I think it's quite a lot. Yeah. But then if you look at the number of dogs that we've diagnosed alveolar echinococcosis in southern Ontario, mm-hmm. it's no more than about nine or ten yeah. over the last ten years. So how many eggs do you need to produce the disease? I don't know. Yeah. I suspect it's large numbers over a lengthy period result okay. are more likely to result in disease. Okay. And, and a lot of dogs probably get exposed and never develop disease. Right. Okay. That's good to know. How do we screen for, for Echinococcus multilocularis? So the question is, what, what are you screening for? Are you screening for intestinal infections or are you screening for liver disease? Yeah. If you're screening for intestinal infections, uh, historically you'd have done fecal examination, for instance, using double centrifugation. Mm-hmm. But the eggs are called what we refer to as tenia-type eggs, yeah. and you wouldn't be able to differentiate them under a microscope from all the eggs that are produced by tenia-type worms. Mm-hmm. The other issue is that Examining fecal samples that way is very insensitive. So a lot of intestinal infections you'll miss. Just in the last year or two, a number of the veterinary diagnostic companies have started offering PCR diagnostics for Mm -hmm. detecting intestinal infections. Um, And they are a lot more sensitive um, and have started picking up infections when we never detected them before with standard fecal centrifugation methods. Right. Um, At the moment, I... at the moment, they're often done, for instance, if, you do a, if you've got a fecal result that says positive for tenia-type eggs, and if you want to determine whether or not those were echinococcus, you just request PCR typing. Okay. That was until about a year ago what was typically being done, but at least one of the companies, so that's Antec, is offering a large PCR screening panel mm. that includes... Um, a PCR method for Echinococcus multilocularis. So f- certainly from my experience, actually across Canada, we're picking up now a bunch of dogs on wellness exams um, that are PCR positive um, for this particular parasite. Okay. And so, number one, they obviously require treatment to eliminate the intestinal infection, yeah. but there's an also an important conversation with family members about potential public health concern. Yeah. So that's screening for intestinal infections. If there's any concern about the liver form, the usual recommendation today is to screen initially using ultrasound. And if there's any lesions um, that are concerning, is to follow that up, um, certainly for the t- at the moment, using fine needle aspirates or potentially biopsy. Mm-hmm. And going forward, the University of Saskatchewan is developing an antibody test um, identical to the one that's currently offered in Europe okay. um, through the University of Zurich and University of Bern. It's right. an antibody test, which would be a useful confirmatory test in dogs that have suspicious liver lesions. Okay, but that that would be university-specific testing, not some, like a snap test or something no, that we could not use not at in, the moment. in so, general practice. And, and the same approach is actually now being adopted for people in Canada, if there's any concern. Now um, they've changed recently to recommend imaging first mm-hmm. and then to follow that up, if suspicious, with blood tests, antibody tests. Yeah, okay. All right. So that's good to know that those are available to us at least. Uh, and you mentioned um, uh, being zoonotic, and I believe it's a reportable disease right now. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Who to report to? Why did it become reportable? 
So Ontario is different, actually, from the rest of Canada. It's the only province that has made this reportable, okay. not only in people, but also in animals. Right. Um, there are one or two other provinces that have made it reportable in people, for instance, Quebec, but not animals. Mm. So if it's, a, if it's ever diagnosed, for instance, in veterinary practice, and it typically would be in a dog, all right, it has to be reported to the local medical officer of health. So this is okay. not like a federally reportable disease. Right. Um, it's reported to the local medical officer of health. Mm. Usually, to be honest, by the time you as a vet have got that diagnostic result from a company, the company's already reported it. Right. Because there's a legal obligation for them to do that. Okay. And the reason the reporting is to the medical officer of health is that they will then send folks, for instance, into your practice, into the family household where this dog resided mm. to do a risk assessment and to determine whether or not any follow-up testing should be carried out on people on the people so for animals in ontario it's reported to the local medical of medical officer of health yeah and i guess the same with people then if 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 it were diagnosed on a person they their gp would have reported to yeah them. and, and yeah. The, the same reporting would go on yeah okay and it was it was made reportable in all species in 2018 in ontario Partly because of all the dogs we were seeing with alveolar echinococcosis, mm. almost none of which had travelled, so right. it all indicated local infection. And then I think what tipped the balance is when the study was done on wild canids right throughout southern Ontario, and that showed, on average, at least 25% of animals were infected, yeah. which suggested high levels of environmental contamination. Right. Um, and the wild canid study actually came about because of requests from the public health community. They wanted to know where it was. Okay. Because until that point, it really wasn't on the radar, yeah. even for human physicians, because we weren't supposed to have it. Right, yeah. Um, so when those data came out, in addition to the dog cases, I think it was at that point, folks said, let's make it reportable, and then we have a much better idea of the cases that are occurring, not only in animals, but also in people. Okay. And, and that was, one, for surveillance, but two, just because of the severity of the condition in people? Yeah, because uh, yeah. because the disease in people is can be very nasty and has yeah. a very poor prognosis if it's diagnosed late. Yeah. The earlier you diagnose it in people, the better the prognosis. Yeah. The okay. cost to the public health system is sizable mm -hmm. in in people with disease. Right. So it's if it's not caught until late, not only is there a the guarded prognosis, um, but the cost to the the um, health system is sizable. Yeah. Okay, so better try to prevent it then. Uh. Or catch it really early yeah, on catch people. It, yeah, makes sense. Okay, and then you mentioned um, the the cases in the, the Golden Horseshoe area. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Why why that area in particular versus the rest of Ontario? Why have most of the cases of alveolar echinococcosis in dogs occurred in the Golden Horseshoe area? Yeah. We think it's almost certainly because the risk of intestinal infections in wild canids in that area is significantly higher than the rest of southern Ontario. Mm -hmm. I said overall throughout southern Ontario, about 23% of right. wild canids are infected. But if you look just at the western end of um, Lake Ontario and the public health units in that area, mm -hmm. it's anywhere from about 23 to almost 40%. So oh, the right. risk of infection in wild canids and therefore in the environment is a lot higher. Yeah. So the environmental burden, I think, is just much higher. Mm -hmm. And why that area? Almost, It looks geographically that it's very likely come in from the US. Yeah. Um, so we've just had it longer in the, in the Golden Horseshoe area than, for instance, eastern Ontario. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
And then what about other provinces? You mentioned Quebec, but out west, what's the what's the situation like out there? It's actually a lot worse, particularly if you go to Alberta. Mm-hmm. I mean, the disease in dogs, alveolar echinococcosis, has been diagnosed all the way from British Columbia to Ontario, right? Yeah. There have been no cases diagnosed east of Ontario yet in mm. dogs. Right. But the, 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 the province with the highest number of cases, not only in dogs, but also in people, is Alberta. Mm. Um, unlike Ontario, that, as far as we're aware, has probably had somewhere between three and five human cases um, in the last 10 years. Uh, in Alberta, there's been at least 26 human cases, and their human wow. population is a lot less yeah, than yeah. here. Um, and they've had a lot more dogs with alveolar echinococcosis than we have. So things just seem to be changing much more quickly, yeah. particularly in Alberta, particularly the southern half of Alberta. Okay. And do you have any reason as to why that could be? Just difference in in populations or lack of, of anthelmintic treatments or combinations? I, I'm not sure we really know this. If you yeah. look at um, inner urban migration of wild canids, I think there's, there's clear evidence there's likely been a sizable increase. Mm. Um we're not entirely sure why they're seeing a lot more disease. It does appear that gen- genetically the parasite might be slightly different in parts of Western Canada than, it, than they are in southern Ontario, though that's not 100% clear. So whether or not there's parasites with slightly different from virulence that are driving this, mm-hmm. it's probably more likely wild canid population differences yeah. between that part of Canada and southern Ontario. It's, that's right. probably the, the primary driving yeah. factor, but it's not 100% clear. Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And then circling back to prevention and, and preventative use, what, what are your recommendations for, for the average general practitioner? So as far as the liver form, there mm-hmm. really is no drug that can be used as a preventative for yeah. the liver form. However, as far as preventing intestinal infections with the adult tapeworm, um, praziquantel is in many products approved for treatment of Echinococcus multilocularis. And if it's given on a monthly basis, that essentially prevents the dog from ever shedding eggs into the environment. Yeah. And the reason for doing preventative treatment with praziquantel in dogs, it's nothing to do with the health of that dog because intestinal infections don't make them sick, but right. it's eliminating the public health risk. Mm-hmm. However, the obvious question then is, well, then which dogs do you recommend praziquantel treatment monthly Um, and it can't be every dog right right? it's only going to be dogs that are in risk of ingesting rodents Mm -hmm. Um, and if that's a concern you obviously ask me the question well how much of the year do you think that's likely yeah because throughout the at-risk time it needs to be monthly treatment and then it is useful to ask what sort of household does that dog live in and the reason i mention that is there's pretty clear evidence that uh, people that are immunosuppressed are much more likely to, to develop disease yeah. than immunocompetent people. And so you'd be much more cautious with ind- individuals in that type of household. Mm-hmm. The concern about over-medicating with praziquantel, and yeah. it could theoretically be 12 times a year, right. is development of drug resistance. And there is precedent for that from the US, where just in the last few years, resistance to praziquantel has been described in a number of areas in Dipalidium caninum, the flea tapeworm. And that was at a time when we didn't give praziquantel more than once a year to dogs. So 12 times a year um, is a concern when we have no other options at the moment. 
So you're saying that we need to be judicious with with the use of that product and and really do a, a complete risk assessment and a regular risk assessment. Yeah. Just has, has things changed in right. the life of that dog in the life of that household? Yeah. Okay. It's good to know. Um, yeah, I remember when it, it sort of first came on the scene, it was just the time of COVID was coming around. And I think here, at least, I don't know about other hospitals, but we were putting everyone, because I guess it was such a new parasite, not all the information was available. So we, every patient got, yeah, Praziquantil, Interceptor Plus, and, and next got, but now we've sort of shifted to, to really doing that case-specific and, and risk assessment type. I mean, you, risk assessment's great. I think with these new cheap fecal PCR diagnostics for Echinococcus multilocularis, yeah. in part, you could also base the decision whether or not to do preventative treatment on, for instance, tr- screening dogs, for instance, every six months mm-hmm. with a PCR method. Because even, yeah. even if it's a dog that's known to go outside, you could use the approach of, well, let's screen it regularly. And at, at a, you know, when we find it's PCR positive, mm-hmm. then put it on to preventative treatment rather than assuming that every outdoor dog, just in case. Yeah. Particularly if costs is a concern right. and it's a low-risk household. Okay. All right. That's good to know. It's a, it's a rapidly emerging issue, particularly yeah. in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go particularly out to Alberta and to some extent Saskatchewan, there is a lot of concern about this parasite, yeah. particularly... Um, for dog owners and just keep up to date with local folks in each of the vet schools because there's a lot of work being carried out to determine how common are dog infections how common is infection in wild canids in the mm-hmm. area where you practice how often are human infections being diagnosed it's yeah. typically the people in your area like so if you're an outside ontario look to your vet schools and the public health community for current up-to-date information yeah Okay, so that that's great advice for all the GPs out there. Um, it's it, it's not new, but it's still emerging. You would say then. No, and what's particularly interesting, just a month or two ago, um, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research held a meeting up in Ottawa to get physicians together who are concerned about this, and it was the physicians that are driving this right. to set up um, essentially a national surveillance group yeah. um, for infection, both in people. Uh, and to some extent in animals as yeah. well, so that we can they can keep everyone updated. Yeah. And this is concern from the human community yeah. that's driving this. That's good. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, just highlights the collaboration with with you know human and, and veterinary medicine mm-hmm. and bringing that whole one health aspect mm-hmm. into uh, into practice as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Peregrine. Uh, always a pleasure chatting with you. Um, I do hope we can get you back on the show at some point to, to speak about another one of your favorite parasites. Yeah, thanks. Happy to help out. Yeah, thanks so much. This episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust, founded in 1986 at the Ontario Veterinary College, is Canada's first charitable fund dedicated to improving and advancing companion animal health and well-being. OVC Pet Trust supports innovative discoveries education, and healthcare that improve the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of diseases of pets. Learn more about OVC Pet Trust at www.pettrust.ca or connect with them on Instagram at OVC Pet Trust. Thank you to our guests for listening today. Uh, thank you again to Dr. Andrew Peregrine. If you have any further questions or ideas, send an email to vetsessions at hotmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at vetsessions. Take care, everyone.